Hello, listeners. As an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. In God's speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. I feel uh, Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Griffin, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 224 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 11, Moonwalk, Part 2, One Priceless Moment. Beautiful view. Isn't that something? Magnificent flight out here. Magnificent desolation. Buzz Aldrin stood on the lunar module footpad, preparing to take his first step on the moon. While holding the ladder with both hands, Aldrin swung both feet out of the footpad and onto the moon. The checklist called for Aldrin to check his balance and stability, and that he did, twirling and leaping like a dancer in slow motion, feeling the strange inertia of his backpack. To compensate for the mass of the pack, he had to lean forward at a seemingly impossible angle. On Earth, he would have fallen over. But the pull of this small world was so mild that he could not easily tell when he was standing exactly upright. Looking into the distance, Aldrin scanned the plains of the Sea of Tranquility. The land curved gently but noticeably away from him all the way out to the horizon, which was only a mile and a half away. He could actually see that he and Armstrong were standing on a sphere. Aldrin's eyes went to his feet, where a fascinating display of motion took place every time he took a step. Each footfall launched a spray of particles that sailed outward in perfect arcs, unhindered by an atmosphere, all coming to rest roughly the same distance away. Intrigued, he kicked his foot like a child on a playground, sending streams of dust flying gracefully into space. He looked at his own footprints and marveled at their sharpness, as if he had placed his foot in talcum powder. And always, he radioed his observations to Earth. And so, two men at the edge of human experience went about their work, their faces hidden by mirrors, their voices so unrevealing that most of the time only people who knew them well could hear the excitement in them. 
They talked about the mechanical behavior of the soil and the appearance of the rocks, and it was all very technical, all under control. The first men on the moon were not about to indulge in excited exclamations or elaborate statements of wonder, not just because the first lunar landing was laden with history, but because it was not in their nature. Hey Neil, didn't I say we might see some purple rocks? Find a purple rock? Yep. Very small, sparkly uh, fragments are the uh, rock. They're reflected on in places. That would uh, make a first guess of some sort of biotype. We'll leave that to the uh, further analysis. Soil uh, compacts underneath. By international agreement, no nation could claim the moon, even one that managed to go there. That was reflected in the plaque on Eagle's front leg bearing the inscription, We came in peace for all mankind. Bill is now unveiling the plaque. Uh, Roger, we've got you four-sided, but uh, back to the one side. For those who haven't uh, read the plaque, uh, we'll read the plaque that's on the front landing gear of this lamb. There's, there's two hemispheres, one showing each of the two hemispheres of Earth. Underneath it says, Dear men from the planet Earth, first set foot upon the moon. July 1969, AD. It came in peace for all mankind. It has the, the crew members' signatures and the signature of the President of the United States. Then Armstrong moved their television camera location to about 60 feet from Eagle. This would help Earthlings see some of the things Neil and Buzz were seeing and it would let the world watch the astronauts going about their business. Next, Armstrong and Aldrin unfurled an American flag, stiffened with wire so that it would fly on an airless world. But Neil and Buzz struggled to plant the flag in the dust. As hard as they tried, they could push the flagpole only six or eight inches into the ground. For a moment, it seemed the flag would fall over in front of the worldwide audience. Finally, they secured the pole in the surface and extended the stars and stripes along the telescoping arm so it wouldn't droop down in the airless, breezeless plane of tranquility. But the arm would not telescope out all the way, which by accident made the flag look furled as though waving in the non-existent wind. Posing for Armstrong's camera, Aldrin looked at the banner and felt a swell of patriotic pride and humility come over him. He thought of the thousands of people who had helped get it to the moon and the millions who must be watching him and Armstrong at this moment. He had an almost mystical sense of the unity of humankind so strong that he felt as if he and Armstrong were not alone. Aldrin marveled at the paradox. No one had ever been farther from Earth 
and yet no one had ever been the object of more attention. On the other end of that paradox, an estimated 600 million people, a fifth of the world's population, were indeed watching and listening the largest audience for any single event in history. Across the United States, it was a hot July evening, and in department stores keeping summer hours, and at moonwalk parties, and even bars, there was an unaccustomed silence. A fantastic, high-tech stage play was unfolding on every working television set. It was a scene of utter stillness, except for two figures who bounded and leaped like snowmen brought to life, with eagle's spidery form as a backdrop. The picture seemed ghostly, as if it had lost some of its substance crossing the quarter-million-mile distance to Earth. In all, the images from the moon were like a window on a dream. While Neil collected an assortment of rock samples, Buzz's next task was to test the various modes of locomotion in the lunar gravity. Aldrin took off on a slow-motion jog, heading for the TV camera. Each step launched him into space, his body suddenly a projectile on a ballistic arc, suspended in mid-stride until he landed in a spray of powder. Time slowed. He was at the top of the arc waiting to come down. The mass of the backpack required him to anticipate changes in directions well in advance. He kept his eyes out four or five steps ahead, watching for rocks or craters. Then he bounded across the moonscape on two feet. The so-called kangaroo hop did work, but it seemed that your forward mobility was not quite as good as it was in the conventional one-foot-after-another mode. As he ran, he looked like a science fiction version of the famous old silent movie that showed a human figure in motion. Aldrin fully expected that when he was back on Earth, the engineers would use the videotape to make careful measurements of his motion to aid future moonwalkers. Instead, they would be content simply to hear him tell about it. I'd like to evaluate the uh, various paces that a person can traveling on the surface. I believe I'm out of your field of view. Is that right now, Houston? That's affirmative, Buzz. You're in our field of view now. You have to be. All right, you do have to be uh, rather careful uh, to keep track of where your center of mass is. Sometimes it takes about two or three paces to uh, make sure that uh, you've got your feet underneath you. And about two or three or maybe four easy paces can bring you to a fairly smooth uh, stop direction. Like a football player, you just have to put out to the side and cut a little bit. So-called kangaroo hop does work, but it seems so your forward ability is not quite as good as it is in the conventional, more conventional uh, one foot after another. As far as saying what a uh, main pace might be, one that I'm using now 
get rather tiring after several hundred. But this may be a function of the suit, as well as uh, lack of gravity force here. Aldrin was in the middle of his experiments in locomotion when he heard Capcom Bruce McCandless say, Neil and Buzz, the President of the United States, is in his office now and would like to say a few words to you. Armstrong responded formally, That would be an honor. Aldrin suddenly felt his heart pound with anticipation. He was taken by surprise. Later, he would learn that Armstrong had known that the president might call, but had not mentioned it. The two men faced the camera and stood still. Moments later, they heard Richard Nixon's voice. Uh, go ahead, Mr. President. This is Houston out. Hello, Neil and Buzz. I'm talking to you by telephone from the over room at the White House. And this certainly has to be the most historic telephone call ever made. I just can't tell you how proud we all are of what you For every American, this has to be the proudest day of our lives. And for people all over the world, I am sure they too join with America in recognizing what an immense feat this is. Because of what you have done, the heavens have become a part of man's world. And as you talk to us from the sea of tranquility, it inspires us to redouble our efforts to bring peace and tranquility to Earth. Throughout the moonwalk, Aldrin had the slightly discomforting sense of being part of something bigger than himself. He noticed a kind of detachment from the event, as if he were watching it unfold before him somehow beyond his control, and it seemed especially so in these moments, standing before the flag, listening to the president. As he listened, he wondered what he might say in response. He decided he would not say anything. Nixon continues. For one priceless moment in the whole history of man, all the people on this earth are truly one. One in their pride in what you have done, and one in our prayers that you will return safely to Earth. There was a silence, and then Armstrong responded. Thank you, Mr. President. It's a great honor and privilege for us to be here representing not only the United States, but men of peace of all nations, men with a vision for the future. Thank you, Mr. President. It's a great honor and privilege for us to be here representing not only the United States, but men of peace of all nations, and with interest and a curiosity and, and with a vision for the future. Uh, honor for us to be able to participate here today. To some listeners, Armstrong's voice seemed thick with emotion as if he were on the verge of tears. Years later, Armstrong would say that in answering the president, with a few hundred million people listening, he was probably concentrating on trying to say something that made sense. And thank you very much, and I look forward, all of us look forward to seeing you on the Hornet on Thursday. Look forward to that very much, sir. 
The two men raised their gloved hands in salute, then turned away from the camera and went back to work. If Armstrong and Aldrin had climbed back into Eagle at that moment and blasted off to rejoin Collins, their mission would have been accomplished. The flag was up, and there was, in Armstrong's pocket, a small sample bag of the moon. He and Aldrin had already demonstrated that future explorers would be able to work in this alien environment. Anything from now on was frosting on the cake. On Earth, this was the point at which many moonwalk parties started to break up. But in Houston, a team of now quite frustrated geologists watched like children looking at a toy store on closed-circuit TV. Armstrong would not let them down. He had been preparing to collect samples when the president called. Now, while Aldrin set about inspecting and photographing the eagle, Armstrong grabbed a long-handled aluminum scoop and began prospecting. There wasn't much time. Armstrong was allowed only about ten minutes to gather enough rocks and soil to fill one of two aluminum sample containers, or rock boxes. The geologist called this the bulk sample, and it was intended to be a fairly quick grab. Later, he and Aldrin were to spend time carefully collecting and photographing the so-called documented sample. But Armstrong wasn't at all sure what the rest of the moonwalk would bring, and in case he didn't get a chance for the documented sample, he wanted to select as varied a collection now as he could. But Neil struggled with the stiffness of his suit and the one-sixth gravity. It seemed no matter how careful he was, when he lifted the scoop from the ground, half the contents went sailing away like pieces of styrofoam. Simply getting the sample over to the lunar module was a real challenge. But Armstrong persevered, and after several minutes the box was full. Now the task was to seal the box, which would preserve the samples in a lunar vacuum for passage to Earth. But that proved to be a struggle, and when he was finished, the entire bulk sample operation had taken longer than planned. Buzz is making his way around the limb, photographing it from various angles, uh, looking at its condition on all sides. Neil's still occupied with the uh, bulk sample. One hour, 40 minutes time expended on the PLSSs now. How's the bulk sample coming, Neil? Bulk sample is just being sealed. Roughly an hour was left in the moonwalk, and there was still the work of setting up the two scientific experiments. Armstrong realized there would not be nearly enough time for all the exploring he wanted to do. Already he realized the moon was far more interesting than he had expected. As he accompanied Aldrin on an inspection of the eagle, his attention was constantly drawn to another interesting feature. Some of the small craters had at their centers bits of something shiny with a beautiful metallic luster. He had no idea what they were, but they looked like blobs of molten solder on a workshop table. He wished he still had the scoop in his hand. Also, he saw what looked like transparent crystals lying in the dust, 
The biggest was the size of a walnut. He would have to come back for these things later, during the documented sample, if there was time. The sea of tranquility was more rugged than Armstrong had expected, all bumps and hollows, and not an ideal place to set out a pair of scientific instruments. But about fifty feet from Eagle, Neil and Buzz managed to find a fairly level spot to deploy a solar-powered seismometer to detect moonquakes and an array of prisms that would serve as a reflector for a laser beam from Earth to help scientists measure the precise distance from the Earth to the moon. Can you see us underneath the slam uh, over at the uh, SEQ Bay, Houston? Yes, indeed, Buzz. We can see your feet sticking out uh, underneath the structure of the LAM descent stage. The SEQ Bay contains the uh, scientific experiments to be left on the surface of the moon. The laser reflector. They're open, and it looks like they're going to stay up without any problem. They've been on the portable life support systems for two hours now. Hey, have you got us a good area picked up? Well, I think right out on that rise out there is probably as good as any. Stay on the high ground there and... Uh, Watch at the edge of that crater is rather yeah, that's soft. soft there, isn't it? And a couple of close-ups yeah. on these uh, quite rounded, large boulders. Buzz Aldrin coming into view on the right, carrying the two experiments. About 40 feet out, I'd say out to the end of that next... Uh, well, it's going to be a little difficult to find a good level spot here. Uh, top of that next little ridge there, isn't that, wouldn't that be a pretty good place? Yeah, but I put the uh, LRQ for you about here. All right. I'm going to have to get on the other side of this rock here. I would go right around that crater to the left there, in that a level spot there. I think this right here is just as level. And they will be out of the camera's field of view while setting up these experiments. The boulders uh, look like basalt, and uh, they have probably 2% uh, white minerals in them, uh, white uh, crystals. And uh, the thing that I reported as uh, vesicular before, I, I'm not, I don't believe I believe that anymore. I think it's uh, small craters, uh, they look like uh, little impact craters where uh, shot, baby shot has hit the uh, surface. Uh, did I say I'm not having too much success in uh, leveling the PSE uh, experiment? Laser reflector is... Uh, installed and the bubbles level and uh, the alignment uh, appears to be good. Neil, this is Houston. Roger out. Hey, you want to take a look at this BBC, what you make out of it? I found it pretty hard to get uh, perfectly level, too. My TV likes the outside. It won't go on the inside. That little uh, cup is unvexed now instead of concave. I think you're right. I believe it is. Uh, Houston, I don't think there's any help for using this uh, leveling device to come up with an accurate level. It looks to me as though the, uh, the cup here that the BB is in is uh, now convex instead of concave, over. Uh, Roger 11, uh, press on. Uh, if you think it looks level by eyeball, go ahead. Okay. The bubble they're discussing is on a leveling device on the uh, passive seismometer. 
good work. Uh, Houston, the, uh, as I was facing the PSE, the right-hand uh, solar array deployed automatically. The left-hand, uh, I had to manually the screening uh, bar at the far end. And uh, all parts of the solar array are clear of the ground now. So Buzz, this is Houston. Understand you did successfully deploy both solar arrays over... After struggling with getting the experiments level, both the solar-powered seismometer and the laser reflector were finally deployed. Then, as Armstrong and Aldrin finished with the experiments, Capcom Bruce McCandless radioed with some good news. Salutations from the Wolverine State. This is Michael Lannis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 224 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 11 Moonwalk Part 2, One Priceless Moment. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook. You can do all of that as well as download every episode of the podcast, even the ones that no longer fit on the main RSS feed, on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. In case you haven't heard, there is a new RSS feed for the first 12 episodes of the podcast. You can find it on the homepage as well on the right side of the page. This means that the first 12 episodes are once again available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. To find the podcast there, search for Space Rocket History Archive. Want to send out my deepest sympathy for those affected by Hurricane Irma. I visited a large portion of Florida earlier this year, and I just want to wish everyone down there the best. If you want to support the victims of Irma and Harvey, you can go to redcross.org. I'll put the link on this week's episode. Today, we salute my Rocket Emoji donors. These donors have donated for at least two years in a row and received a Rocket Emoji next to their name on the donors list. Thanks, Rocket Emoji donors, for your continued support. One other announcement. We are currently traveling, and my access to email, Twitter, and Facebook is somewhat limited. If you do need to contact me, the best method is email, mike at spacerockethistory.com, because I will probably see it there. Okay, had a few afterthoughts about this week's episode. What did you think of Neil not telling Buzz that the president might call? And Buzz is kind of standing there thinking, What am I supposed to say to Nixon? But you know, I think Richard Nixon got it right. For one priceless moment in the whole history of man, all people on this earth were truly one. Mostly. 
I didn't emphasize this in the episode, but Neil and Buzz had some difficulty when they moved the camera 60 feet away from the lunar module. The cable had been coiled up inside the lunar module for several weeks, and when they pulled it out, it still retained that memory of the loops in it. It's just like uh, you would do here on Earth. Like you got a coil of wire and you pull it out. It tends to remain looped up until you pull it tight. Well, when they were doing this, there was a, they created somewhat of a trip hazard, and I've got a little clip of that. Watch it, Neil. Neil, you're on the cable. Okay. Yeah, link up your right foot. Right foot. Uh, it's still, your toe is still hooked in it. That one? Yeah, it's still hooked in it. Come in. Okay, you're clear now. Thank you. What would have happened if Neil had tripped? Well, I think he would have just got back up. Now, also in my research, I found that one of the biggest regrets the astronauts had was not having enough time during the moon EVA. I have a quote from Armstrong during the post-mission press conference. He said, quote, The primary difficulty that we observed was that there was just far too little time to do the variety of things that we would have liked to have done. There were rocks in a boulder field, that we photographed out Buzz's window that were three and four feet in size, very likely pieces of lunar bedrock, and it would have been very interesting to go over and get some samples of those. We had the problem of a five-year-old boy in a candy store. There were just too many interesting things to do. And here is what Aldrin said from the 1969 technical debrief. Quote, it is the sort of thing you just cannot anticipate before flight. You can plan to some degree when you're on the surface, but until you get out and look around, you can't make your final decision as to what you are really going to do. From inside the cabin, you are only looking at perhaps 60% of the available panorama. We were supposedly in a nondescript area, but there was far more to investigate than we could ever hope to cover. We didn't even scratch the surface. End quote. I guess there's never enough time when you're on the moon. Okay, I have posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on my homepage, spacerockethistory.com. I hope you check that out. I was very pleased to receive several new donations to support the podcast over the past week. Eric P. donated at the Mercury level and earned his moon emoji. Daniel F. donated at the Vostok level. Don H. from Texas made another donation this year, moving him up to the Mir ISS level. Gary M. donated at the Vostok level. Peter C. donated at the Soyuz level. Bert D. from the Netherlands donated at the Vostok level and earned his rocket emoji. Frazier W. pledged on Patreon at the shuttle level and earned his moon emoji. Zbigniew M. pledged on Patreon at the Soyuz level and earned his rocket emoji. Martin R. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. And Christoph L. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Apollo level. That brings the Patreon total to 138. That is 12 short of the goal of 150 before the end of the year. And our overall donors have reached 248, 
with a goal of reaching 300 by the end of the year. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2017, please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded, and I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. You don't have to donate much. You can make a one-time $10 donation at the Vostok level or sign up with Patreon for a small monthly donation. Sort of like a voluntary subscription. Just go to the home page and click on one of the links on the top right side of the page and begin your support of the Space Rocket History Podcast. For those of you who have already donated for 2017, I certainly appreciate it. I have an item to give away this week. It is the NASA 3.5-inch diameter meatball sticker. To select the winner, I gave each donor a number. I put it in the random number generator, and I got the number for Cristina Rodriguez Cuevas. Cristina, if you would email me, Mike, at spacerockethistory.com and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. We've got several more of those stickers to give away, so we'll have another drawing next week for the 2017 donor group. I want to encourage everyone to share the podcast. Feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on all social media. And thanks for those who've already done so. And this is the end of content for this episode, and you're welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. Thanks for sticking around, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week, we will continue right where we left off. In podcast statistics, last week I told you the top 10 countries for downloads, and now I have 11 through 20 for August. These are countries 11 through 20 in the number of downloads for August 2017. Number 11, Norway remains at 11. Austria moves up to 12. Ireland moves up to 13. Spain moves up to 14. At 15, we have Denmark. 16 is Finland. 17, Mexico. 18, Switzerland. 19, the Asia-Pacific region. And 20, Brazil. I want to give a big shout-out to all my listeners in countries 11 through 20. Thanks for listening. As I mentioned, we are traveling now. We're in a campground in Michigan near Buchanan. On the way up, we were able to stop in Wapakoneta, Ohio and visit the Armstrong Air and Space Museum, which I thoroughly enjoyed and Mrs. SRH liked it too. The museum has a very remarkable appearance. It is a replica of the moon, and it is big, and it's hollow inside, and they have a theater in there. As I went inside, the first thing that I viewed was a lot of space rocket history. Kind of reminded me of the podcast. They had a Sputnik replica, and then they had a little orbit table that they used to demonstrate how the moon and artificial satellites maintain orbit around the Earth. Now, that was pretty interesting there. They had the plane that Neil Armstrong learned to fly in. Had it sitting vertically, actually. Kind of strange. But my favorite part was the Gemini 8 capsule. They had it there. Neil and, remember, that was uh, Neil and Dave Scott's rendezvous and docking mission with the Agena. Remember what happened? The the, uh, thruster got stuck on that one. So I enjoyed seeing that up close. 
They had also Neil's Jiminy spacesuit and his backup suit for Apollo. And, of course, they had a moon rock that Neil collected. They had a lunar module landing simulator and a space shuttle simulator. So, all in all, it was worth the $8 admission. Now, while we were in Wapakoneta, we did drive by Neil Armstrong's home while he was attending Bloom High School from 1944 through 47. We couldn't go inside because it's a private residence now, so we took a couple pictures from the street. But that was a lot of fun, and we had a lot of uh, fun in Wapakoneta, Ohio. Okay, that's about all I have for this week. I'll try to have episode 225 ready by next Thursday. So long for now.